This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Although the national election and COVID-19 pandemic continue to dominate the news cycle, there is other news out there, and the worlds of science, exploration, and research are moving along with fascinating new discoveries. Today on Undisciplined's monthly news roundup, we'll be talking about some of the cool things you might have missed this month, and we're doing it with three of our favorite people from the University of Utah, where she is the Director of Marketing and Communications at the David Eccles School of Business. It's Sheena McFarland. She is an immense science buff with a degree in biology teaching, whose work as a journalist includes features on space exploration and paleontology. Sheena, so glad to have you back. So wonderfully excited to be here. Thanks for having me. And also with us on the Roundup is Rodrigo Noriega. He's an assistant professor of physical and material chemistry, also at the University of Utah, with a research agenda focused on macromolecular materials. Rodrigo, thanks for coming back. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. And last but not least is Marella Meyerfica, who also first joined us back in 2019 to talk about her team's work to genetically engineer a mouse that is dependent on niacin in the same way as humans. And she's become one of our favorite Roundup guests as well. Calling in from Utah State University, it's Marella Meyerfica. Hey, it's good to have you back too. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. You guys, I wanted to work chronologically through time today. So let's start 250 million years ago with an animal that I'd never heard of before this month, the very strange Lystrosaurus, a mammal that survived one of the biggest die-off events in history, perhaps according to the new research, by sleeping its way through some of the devastation. You guys, this is a strategy I think many of us would have wanted to apply to 2020. What do you think? That was really my first response was, where is my torpor that I get to go into to get through this year? But I was really impressed. I'd never seen this animal either. And thinking about sleeping your way through just the tumult that this animal survived is pretty impressive to me. One thing that I found really exciting is I wasn't aware of the ability to measure stress periods and basically bone growth for for these animals, right? This is something that we're usually thinking of tree rings as a way of keeping time and knowing where plants are stressed or not. But then to see this in the bone of a mammal was something that I thought was really exciting to learn about. And Rodrigo's referring to the band growth of these animals' tusks, which is this really interesting area of cross-disciplinary science, which helps us understand the life and times of trees and shelled aquatic animals like clams and some species of sponges even. And these tusked animals like these Lystrosauruses, I really like the simplicity of this form of science where growth bands in most species show up each year, and they show up differently depending on many factors. Morella, this is a fascinating line. Have you thought about what the, the implications of band research are, growth band research are, for what you do as well? Yes, I have thought about it a little bit, and I think it's such a cool indicator. I don't know if, you know, for genetic research, I can draw too much information from band growth, but what I study, like metabolism and genetic adaptation, you cannot easily find that in in structures that are stable enough to survive for 250 million years, right? So I think those bands, they indicate not only, you know, something was different in the teeth, they also indicate that the whole metabolism must have changed. 
So I, I think it's fascinating. Also, what I found fascinating is that variability within the species. It was not only the species that was able to survive. It was a special subset that lived in what used to be Antarctica. But there were also individuals of the species that lived further north and they were not as variable. So for me, the interesting metaphor, besides also wanting to sleep through 2020, is that it's so important to just be flexible and to be able to adapt to what the environment and what life might throw at you. And this this animal just, I think, took it away. Did you guys know about this animal, the Lystrosaurus, before you read about the study? I didn't. I have to admit, I didn't. Neither for me. Nope, never heard of it. So that makes four of us, and it's just like one of those, you know, like one more indication to me that I don't know, you know, the first thing about anything. I feel like every time I'm preparing for this show, I am come across something that, you know, like I feel like I should have known about, right? Because this animal, it's fascinating, this really funny looking thing with these tusks, and it was such a survivor. And you would think like, especially with my interest, like that would have been something that would have come across my eyes at some point. Sheena, you have an abiding longtime interest in paleontology. What do you think when you run into animals that you've never even heard about? Um, you know, for me, it it really makes me think about how many animals that we will never know about, right? It's amazing what paleontologists are uncovering, but there had to be such specific circumstances for an animal to be fossilized and then again, to be found. And it's amazing how we do find these animals and we get one example of the species, right? And you just never know, is that really indicative of the entire species or the entire subset of a species? Or was it just a weird genetic one-off? But for me, it really makes me think of we're lucky when we find these animals and it's really cool to kind of further our knowledge out there, but I'm sure there are so many animals and species of plants and other, you know, just flora and fauna we'll never know about because they just didn't die in a way that they were able to be fossilized and that we were able to find them. So it just kind of opens my mind to how many creatures have lived on this planet that we will have never, ever known about. We've talked on this show before about dark organisms, organisms that we don't have the technology to detect right now. And this is particularly true when it comes to uh, single-celled organisms, microorganisms. But there's this, like you say, Sheena, there's this whole category of dark organisms out there, dark evolutionary history that we'll never be able to put together without the fossil record. And we are able to access some of those dark microorganisms through genetic studies. What is the status right now, to your knowledge, of, of how much genetic information that we can draw from organisms that lived way back, but maybe we don't have complete fossils for? I think it really depends on what kind of material you have left. A couple of months ago, I ran into a study where scientists were so excited to be able to find viruses that were haunting or plaguing humans in the medieval times. This is really not long ago compared to, to what we're talking about with Lystrosaurus here. So I think it really depends on how the material was stored and fossilized. I think we are lucky sometimes to get a little piece of material that might be in a shape that we can draw some information from it. But it's really, I think, very rare. For example, we I think we still don't even know what colors dinosaurs really have, right? Because mm. all we really have are bones or 
fossilized eggshells. So we are very limited in what we can learn about those animals. Probably there is some material out there that we don't have the knowledge or tools to extract or understand yet. But I think it's like Sheena said, a lot of animals we might never be able to trace back in any way just because their existence was and they probably didn't have bones or structures that can be preserved well. And DNA is relatively stable, but not, I think, stable enough for millennia, unfortunately. Let's turn now to a few evolving tech stories. The first is from the University of Maryland, where researchers have created an acoustic thermometer, which senses the intensity of heat-generated sound emanating from nearby objects. This seems like one of those really cool sort of, wow, the stuff we do one way we didn't need to do that way sorts of things. Sheena, what was your uh, response to learning about the thermometer that takes temperatures based on sound? Yeah, I think I had kind of that similar response of, oh, did we need to do this? I think I'm still a little unclear about the applications for this and where that might be better than the ways that we take temperature now. It's really interesting. I didn't know that I mean, I guess I should have thought about molecules moving would make noise. Um, and this hum is a really intriguing thing, but I just wasn't quite sure about the practical application. One thing that really struck me about this study was uh, not just how sensitive it was in terms of temperature and th that it allowed you to measure really small changes in temperature with a new way of measuring, but also that it was directional in a way that other ways of measuring temperature are not. And so that that's something that it, it didn't just tell you which nearby thing, in this case, um, a blob of epoxy that you were heating with a laser, but it could be anything else, right? Which one of those was hotter by a few degrees than it used to be, but where it was, it was the one that was to the right or above you or below you. So that, that's one thing that I think this particular way of measuring is something that could be really useful when you incorporate it into ways of sensing that are localized, that are distributed, and that we don't necessarily need to read out as, as a person, right? It's not that we need to know what's hot and by how much overall as a microscopic object. But when you look at things that are that are small and repeatable, and one of the applications that they that they talk about is in quantum computing, right? Where you really need to have a homogeneous, very low temperature. So if you if you have small deviations in different ways, then the way in which different bits of information uh, interact with each other, would decohere, would lose that information at a different rate. So that's one of the places where I think that this is not something that we're going to have in our medicine cabinet, or <laughs> this, this is more about something that we can put on, on tools that are used at scales where usual ways of measuring are not as practical. And Rodrigo, did you start thinking about things in your field in macromolecular materials where this sort of tool might come in handy? Yeah, one of the things that my group, my research is really interested in, in answering is what's the role of the environment on chemical reactions and chemical processes. And one of the ways in which you can couple to the environment, this bath that they talk about in the paper is basically everything that surrounds you, right? And then there's different ways in which you can understand what's around you and you can interact with it. 
And so that the, the loss of coherence, that loss of information at a quantum level is something that plays a big role in some very important chemical reactions, right? And that protection from the bath is one way in which, for example, some very important macromolecular materials in the biological realm have evolved to separate the ways in which, for example, the light absorption and the reaction center for photosynthesis, that sort of quantum coherence was discovered there in, in temperatures that are not even close to where quantum computing happens, right? So that's something that's really a deep connection between sensing the environment and protecting some important processes from decohering, where temperatures and vibrations is one of the main ways in which that happens. So that was one of the connections that I made with respect to the way that I think about chemical reactions and chemical processes and how they interact with the environment. This is why I love doing the science roundup, because here is a great practical application for this technology. I hadn't thought about that in microcomputing and what that looks like. Um, so thank you, Rodrigo, for sharing that information. We sort of touched on this earlier, but these are all studies that came to us from general science news organizations. The world of science is so big, and yet just by being involved in this sort of way, we're thrown into a story about an animal that lived 250 million years ago or about a new way of measuring temperature that we might not have stumbled on before these thought processes start. And you guys are all veterans of this show now. Has there been a moment in participating in this where, you know, you've thought about your own research in maybe a little bit of a different way because of the things from different disciplines that you're being exposed to? Yeah, honestly, it happens to me all the time because we, I just tend to be so focused on what I do that sometimes I lose important things. And I didn't go into science because I wanted to study this particular small field. I went into science because it's so fascinating and interesting. And every time I go back to the science news page and look at what all is going out there, I rediscover why I love science so much. So for me, it's just perfect. Let's move on now to a story that really captured my imagination this month. Scientists have figured out how to use micro-robots to build bridges between disconnected nerve cell clusters. This is just so cool. Sheena, I got to figure you've got a lot of thoughts on this one. Absolutely. I mean, I have multiple sclerosis, and so that means that my nerves are not behaving well, right? They're doing a lot of bad things. Um, my myelin's desheathing, all of the things that you don't want to have happen to your nerves. And it's Amazing to think about, you know, what I'm thinking of is like nanites being injected into my body and being able to flow up into my brain and fix that, right? How cool would that be? And I think that as we get more and more advanced in our micro technologies and thinking about how nerves work and understanding neurology, we are going to be able to do some amazing things and see some incredible advancements. I think that this is something that provides a lot of hope for a lot of folks who have neurological disorders, who've had nerve damage, who have paralysis, those kinds of things. This could be something really tremendous to kind of reconnect things um, and make you know life a lot better for folks. I just thought it's the coolest thing because we all kind of currently take granted that if someone has a bad car accident and breaks their spine, they will be paralyzed forever. 
and there have been some incremental progress in this field with stem cells but this technology really could mean it's oh yeah you have a bad car accident but you will be able to walk again after the right treatment or can you imagine what it would mean for parkinson's patient that where we know there's this certain type of cells in the brain that aren't functioning that are dying off imagine we could just target replacement cells there and get those people back to a healthy life. It's fascinating what can be done there, I have to say. I was really, really blown away by this study. The potential when you combine this micro-robotics, magnetic control drive with stem cell technology, I think it should open complete doors to what neurologists can do in the future. It's fascinating. One thing that I found really interesting is watching the videos of how they move the robot around and yeah. they hold it in place and then the nerves, the neurons just grow and connect these different pools of neurons that were isolated, as you mentioned. But one of the things that I really honed in on was one thing that they mentioned is that there are many more steps that they envision by saying, well, we need to enhance the biocompatibility of the robot and they provide all these different new directions in which they can do it by like magnetic nanoparticles as opposed to a micro scale robot and how they can then push this forward into single cell studies uh, as opposed to connecting pools of neurons, connecting individual neurons. And, and that that's something that I think will be super, super interesting, especially because then you not only get into a smaller scale, you get it in a way that you minimize or at least you change the way in which you're perturbing the environment in which the cells are growing because now you need to not have micromanipulation or micropipettes, but then you can do it all with effects at a distance from a magnetic field and then you just have the individual robots or particles that you're moving into place, right? So that's something that I found really exciting that you can then manipulate a system as complex as a pool or a group of neurons or an individual neuron even without having to do it manually in a sense. Finally today, and while we didn't know it was going to happen this month, pretty much everyone knew it would happen eventually. The Nobel Prize in Chemistry went to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier for their work in developing the gene editing technique known as CRISPR. The thing that makes me just go, whoa, about this Nobel is just how fast CRISPR has revolutionized everything that we do, it seems. It's only been eight years since Doudna and Charpentier co-authored their first paper on CRISPR, and here we are. I do think it's amazing how CRISPR has absolutely revolutionized how we look at DNA and how we manipulate DNA and thinking of just the amazing possibilities that it has opened up for us. Um, I also love that it's two women that have created this and are being honored with the Nobel Prize. First time ever that two women have won this. And I think that it's just a really cool look at where we are in science right now. And there are these moments, these watershed moments that happen. And I think CRISPR is definitely one of those watershed moments that because of that, it opens up so many other possibilities for scientists to do things in so many fields uh, because genetics are, of course, the base of everything. So there's a lot of medical implication here. Um, there's a lot of just interesting science implication that I think will be continue to be a fascinating prospect as we continue using and manipulating it. I also, Sheena, just like you, I have to say, I was just 
so happy to see that the Nobel Prize was given to two women. At first, I was so happy. And at the same time, I think it's a little sad because I'm so happy, because it should just be a natural thing, because statistically, every other or, or certain percentage of Nobel Prizes should go to just to women, because no one even raises an eyebrow if they go to just men, right? But it's still so few women that have gotten Nobel Prizes. So I think it, besides the great science that is being rewarded, I think it's a great example for the younger generation of female scientists and for girls growing up, just seeing that at some point, being a woman or a girl is not going to be determining what you can achieve in life anymore at all. And this is one of the things that I thought was so fascinating. And I know it's not a science-related thing, but I just thought it was so important. Marilla, you're a geneticist. How much different is the field of genetics today because of this advancement? Like, Is there even any way to quantify how much this has shifted the field? Yeah, you know what, it might sound exaggerated, but I would say we could probably call it a pre-CRISPR and post-CRISPR era. Just like I think the only other change or there were a few changes that were as groundbreaking as CRISPR. I'd say PCR, you probably are familiar with that technique, was discovered in in the 1980s that shifted the field of diagnostics a lot but here in terms especially in terms of genetic manipulation there clearly is a pre and post CRISPR era just like there was a pre and post DNA era in biological sciences and this is just a wonderful tool I really think it's so good that this discovery got the prize because now more people become aware of it and think about it first of all the positive implication that it can have like the prospect of eventually being able to heal genetic diseases and at the same time the prospect of probably doing some genetic manipulation that shouldn't be done. So it's a complete paradigm shifting discovery in the field of genetics. In the time that we have left today, I wanted to know what research related study or news caught your eye this month. Sheena, will you start us off? Yeah, happy to do so. Um, I was looking at the story about scientists cloning an endangered wild horse using frozen cells from a stallion. They used the same cloning technique that gave us Dolly back in 1996. But what was really cool is that the San Diego Zoo has what they call a frozen zoo. So when they have these endangered animals, they've been able to take some cells and freeze them in the hopes that, you know, in the future, there would be an option to regenerate this animal. And they took these cells from a Przewalski horse and were able to, and that was in the eighties. And then they were able to do this, you know, 40 years later. And they're saying that this is going to be the start of a new generation and a, a generations long project to really add genetic diversity back into these horses. And that's a really cool thing that we can hopefully save some of these species that are becoming endangered through scientific means. And Marilla. I found a paper that I thought was interesting, and that's the title was Why Bad Scientists Are Socially Distancing from Their Subject. And it's kind of circling a little bit back to the corona pandemic that we all wish would go away. But I thought it was an interesting take on the whole pandemic idea because we are very anthropocentric. So we think there are viruses that are endangering us 
and they are coming from wild animals, but we are also endangering other wild animals. And now um, bad scientists are really trying to prevent humans from transferring the COVID-19 causing SARS-CoV-2 virus to the North American bat population because it would mean it would spread all over again. So just I thought it was a nice a nice emphasis on how zoonosis can go in the other way too, that humans can cause this so-called reverse zoonotic transmission and make free-range animals sick. And finally, Rodrigo. So lately I've spent a lot of time thinking about strategies to perform team-oriented research and how to communicate scientific content effectively when our usual ways of doing so are upended. And then one of the important aspects that I believe warrants our attention is how to build connections at a personal level when usual communication cues are missing. So um, how do we make sure that we reach a broad set of students, for example, in our classrooms and be mindful that they're also going through a very difficult time? So instead of highlighting a single study, I kind of wanted to share a whole themed issue of the Journal of Chemical Education by the American Chemical Society, where they talk about the challenges of fulfilling our educational mission in this day and age. And in terms of the science, there's one quick paper that I thought people would like that has to do with spatial limits of perception of material properties. So how small can a sensor be and still give you usable information? That's something that was recently in Nature Communications. We will have to leave the discussion there. Sheena McFarland, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. And Marilla Meyer-Fika, thank you. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. And Rodrigo Noriega, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for the discussion. I really appreciate it. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.